This episode of Where Did It All Go Right is sponsored by Pearson. Pearson is the world's learning company, supporting talent and helping everyone to make progress in their lives through learning. Working with teachers and education experts, Pearson provides a wide range of qualification routes so you can pick the course which suits you best to develop your skills and stand out in the crowd. Visit them online at go.pearson.com forward slash where did it all go right. Hello, this is Where Did It All Go Right? I'm Ali Jones and in this podcast we talk to creatives about the pivotal moments in their careers and we hope to inspire and entertain you. So we're into season four and if you're new to us that means there's three other seasons to get your ears around. Uh, We've got radio and TV presenters, comedians, actors, artists, loads of fantastic people who will share their stories and experiences with you. So, this week's guest is writer, director and filmmaker Jessica Swale. You might have seen the beautiful film Summerland this year, which she wrote and directed. Her first play, Blue Stockings, is on the GCSE drama syllabus and her play Nell Gwynn made it to the West End and won an Olivier. She's involved in Time's Up UK and the 50-50 campaign, campaigning for greater equality in theatre and film. But that's just the beginning. I'll leave Jessica to tell you the rest. Well... Jessica, thank you so much for talking to me uh, today. And congratulations on making a film that my whole family watched, which, you know, it's difficult in our family. There's always somebody who goes, oh, I don't like, you know, everyone has different tastes, but everybody absolutely loved Summerland. It's absolutely oh, so fabulous. To hear that. It, it kind of brought up questions like one of the 10 year olds said, um, so if you had to choose between a husband and children, what would you, I'm not giving too much away. What would you do? And I was like, oh, I don't know. Um, but it, right. it brings up a, a lot of questions. She told me immediately that it's easy um, because you don't need a husband. <laughs> well, also, I think there's a question at the heart of it, which is, you know, for a woman, how do you, if you do have to choose that, uh, which a lot of people do, how do you balance or sometimes have to make decisions between having a family life and having a career, you know, or pursuing your passion and, I think that we have been sort of falsely led up an alley where we believe that if you're capable, you should be uh, able to do everything. And um, I just don't think that's always true for all sorts of different reasons. And so I just wanted to tell a story that had a little bit of realism, but also hope because, you know, I only really want to make optimistic work. There's plenty of space for bleak films, but that's not really my bag. And it takes so much effort to make a piece of work that I don't really want to live in a a miserable place for a couple of years while I have to do that <laughs> well it, no and the lighting and the you know it was a cold day we watched it it was a bit dark outside and the, the mm. light and, and, and Gemma Arterton's coat which I fell in love with and the location I it have was just made cool. every effort to persuade them to sell me that coat to no avail so <laughs> it's, a, it's a much loved coat I can tell you that they've had all sorts of offers <laughs> I bet I bet so looking at everything you've done recently I'm wondering how you get the time do you ever get any downtime because you've got an awful lot of projects on at the moment do you manage to to have a bit of relaxation time or are you just thinking about work all the time yeah do you know increasingly in in my old age um it's become more important to try and get a balance in life and I think when I was 
a student and the first few years after university and drama school I was so in love with my work and it was my passion and all of my sort of relationships came through work and all of the people that I was close to and my friendships I there was nothing that made me happier than being at the theatre getting there first thing in the morning staying there all day you're working you're rehearsing or whatever or the show's up and then every single night I'd be there and I'd be in the bar afterwards and we'd all go out together as a cast you'd end up in Bar Italia in Soho at three o'clock in the morning (laughs) you know night after night on the trot and then right the next day and that was that was the entire world that I lived in and I couldn't have been happier it was just like swimming in this sort of soup of a world that I found so sort of enchanting and captivating and all of that old school magic about what the theatre was you know there was something of that still there it was kind of entrancing um and that just can't be sustainable forever well and you must think, have been knackered <laughs> yeah well I don't know do you know what I've always I mean my mum is is somebody who's always done so much she's got a number of degrees she's she was a full-time teacher but she was also writing a book and a thesis and looking after two kids and marking papers and teaching courses and doing another degree at the same time so I sort of brought up in a house with a woman who you know did that alongside looking after me and my brother and my dad and cooking dinner and being super capable so I think downtime was something that was a bit alien to me until recently and it's actually it sounds funny but you do have to teach yourself the need for it and the yeah. desire for it as well. Because I, you know, as a student when I was at school, I was a proper geek. I worked really hard. You know, I went to a grammar school where they pushed you to get straight A's. But I also directed all the school plays, did dance classes in the evenings and, and drama school at the weekends. And now I look back and I think, geez, Louise, like, how did I ever have a boyfriend? <laughs> what, you know, how how did that work? I I. I just didn't have much time on my own mm. and I didn't really want it. Um, and it's funny because I think that when I started trying to find that through yoga and through, I've always traveled a lot, but it's been quite active traveling. I don't really like lying on a beach, but the <laughs> more the more work that I've done and actually the more that I've made my own work as well, the more I've realized that you've just got to have quiet brain time. Yes. And now I love that. And now I really try and build it in. To but my did you job. find when I first started doing yoga, the first time you're lying there going, come on, come on, what's going on? This is boring. I'm staring at the ceiling and I'm thinking about what I've got to do for dinner. And it takes quite a lot of time to get to get out of that kind of, I'm, I'm working and get into that <laughs> more relaxed. Yeah, and I think that's the same every time I do it. I mean, I've probably been practicing now for, because we did it at university. So that's kind of shockingly now about 20 years ago. And it's been a regular part of my life ever since then, but it is, it took me a really long time to find the right types of yoga because I would find I'd sit there and just be thinking about stuff. Whereas I really like dynamic practice and and um, the kind of yoga that I've got a couple of teachers whose voices are quite sort of hypnotic and who talk the whole time. And actually, because I'm listening to them, I tune out of my own thoughts. But yeah, yeah. It's, it's hard to find that stuff. The other antidote I found is soul cycle. <laughs> What's that? Um, soul cycle is ridiculous it's um it's from la of course um, and it's it's spinning but it's like disco spinning so you go into a dark room it's 45 minutes the music's really loud you basically dance on a bike you sweat your absolute ass off it's really hard it's the it's the most um like properly sweat inducing exercise that i do hence why i do it sort of only once a week because it's a bit much but um I love it and it 
there's no way as soon as you're in there you can think about anything else and that's the thing I think for me over the last few years where I've realized I just have to do things where all of that work chatter stops yeah particularly when you're in the middle of doing a creative project and those ideas are coming at a really annoying times I can imagine wine also helps yeah (laughs) wine helps a lot that's my other but not when you're doing that cycling because I would imagine that most of that time I was doing that cycling I would be concentrating so hard just not to fall off because dancing on a bike just sounds intense yeah well your shoes are clipped in that's a good thing you're oh okay you can't get off there's no escape you can't leave the room (laughs) and also you're in the dark there's disco lights but you're in the dark so no one can see you and that's the other thing I absolutely love about it is no one no one cares what anyone looks like because you can't see so you're all good I'm just to check that out. Thank you for that. It's a great tip. Yeah, not at all. But you talked about being at school and, you know, a lot of people say to me they, they never did any drama if they have a career in drama and they never did that at school. But you were right in there. You were doing it all. But did you ever think when you were doing your GCSEs that your one of your plays would be on the GCSE syllabus? You didn't no, have a plan. You didn't not. think, this no. is what I'm going to do. I'm going to, this is rubbish GCSE syllabus. I'm going to change this. Well, no, do you know what? But there was, there was no drama at my school you couldn't do drama GCC you couldn't do drama A level um it was quite a small school and it was because it was academic that was considered a subject that just there wasn't any room for on the timetable so the reason I did lots of drama at school was because of the complete absence of it in a taught way um you know I really I loved the theatre and everything about it and I wanted to have it at school and so I went to see the headmistress when I was about uh, in year nine so about 14 and said look can please can we have a school play schools always have school plays and we don't and she said well yeah but sure but you've got to go and organize it yourself so that was my first foray into directing and you know I kind of I never stopped and so I never was taught drama and I think actually one of the reasons why it never ever crossed my mind to even consider thinking about being a writer I always wanted to be an actor and then when I went to university I realized I wanted to be a director and I did that really happily for 10 years without writing much at all was because there was just no writers I was never exposed to a writer that was female I didn't know that they existed and even doing my lambda exams as a teenager which I did out of school you know we had a syllabus of writers to choose from there wasn't any women on that list so it didn't really cross my mind that it was a possibility. Mm. So, yeah, if you told me that my play would be on the GCC syllabus, my first thing would be probably to say, what do you mean? I, I, there's no way I'm going to be a playwright. And secondly, oh, that's interesting. I thought the only people that wrote plays were dead old white men who, <laughs> you know, used lots of long words and wrote at the end of the 1800s. So, so it's, it's changed, you know, and it's wonderful that, that you've been a part of that, that, you know, you are mm. on that, that syllabus. And uh, you said you didn't have much downtime, but did you have time to sit and watch films when you, when you were a child? I didn't watch films, um, but I went to the theatre a lot. My mum taught English and so I loved that. And I was a complete bookworm. So I was kind of addicted to stories. I loved that. And I was a bit too kind of imaginative for my own good I think um and I guess what I mean by that is you know it's lovely living in a world where you have a really vivid imagination and that's why I could lose myself in a book and um that really was my sort of soul food as a teenager to counterbalance the craziness of teenage life and trying to work out what the hell is going on in your body and your mind and your friendship and why are you crying all the time and all that sort of thing um geez I had a lovely time but it was it's intense as it is for all teenagers. Um, yeah. So but, what sort um, of books were you sort of losing yourself in then? 
Oh, well, it was just the 90s was a really good time to be a teenage bookworm because there's a whole series of stories that came out that kind of completely transported you, particularly to different parts of the world. So I remember there was one year where we all read Captain Corelli's Mandolin, yeah, Memoirs yeah. of a Geisha. Yeah. Um, what else was at that time? Uh, Life of Pi was a bit later, but um, Arundhati Roy's Sublime, um, God of Small Things, uh, Fugitive Pieces, like books that I've still got on my bookshelf now, which are just so rich and engaging and transporting. And Birdsong, and I remember Birdsong going round and everyone passing it round and going, oh my God, the sexy. <laughs> they were like read it read it read it you know it was a kind of innocent 14 year old going oh my god really whoa let me have some of that I'm at an all-girls school there, there's yeah there's more, more in that than, than just 17 magazine if that was around yeah exactly yeah. well exactly yeah it was just 17 there was another one as well yeah position of the fortnight I remember that being a thing <laughs> um in um that was more magazine that's right because just 17 was kind of a bit more uh politically Younger. correct but more okay. magazine was like full-on illustrations of, yeah, that was fun I learned a lot I was I was I was I learned a lot quite quickly by sitting in the school like in the back of the classroom going what is that interesting yeah <laughs> but obviously memoirs of a geisha as well and all that it's all, all they're all quite different reading material aren't they? yeah 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 absolutely <laughs> so if your mum was a, a, an English teacher which how did your parents feel about you saying right well I want to do go go to drama school and do drama was that all okay with them yeah do you know what it was I am so grateful for that now because I really had no idea at the time that it was anything unusual to have parents that just went that's what you want to do great that sounds brilliant mm. the resistance came from other places because um because of being quite academic there was an expectation at our school that you would definitely go to Oxbridge and that you know you should be a lawyer or a doctor or whatever and um, I think the lovely thing about going to an all-girls school is that I had absolutely no sense then of what a, a notion of femininity or what women ought to do specifically because we were all girls it meant that girls did everything so there was people yeah. going off to do mechanics and maths and science and you know the best scientists in our school of course were girls so that I didn't cross my mind that science wasn't a very feminine choice or you know I of course wanted to go off and be creative and I remember there being a few questions about you know can't you go to Oxbridge and then if you still want to be an actor if you haven't <laughs> you got really it out of your to. system <laughs> then um you know because you will have definitely realized by then that it's not a proper job that was the sort of a bit of notion at school um but my parents both come from backgrounds that aren't um at all kind of moneyed or um particularly well to do like my mum's mum and dad were both artists working artists and painters and and before that they were they were woodcutters and um stonemasons and all sorts of things and on my dad's side of the family he comes from a family of sort of um both manual workers and arty people musicians and um designers that sort of thing so uh, and kind of slightly social dropouts so <laughs> I think for them the idea of me wanting to be an actor was something that was kind of you know they just they really wanted me to be happy um and it really hasn't been until years later when I've you know kind of looked back on my childhood and 
now I know a lot more people and a lot of you know my peers who had parents who really resisted that mm. in them and who had to fight against that and and also friends of mine who've ended up doing some sort of job that they're not in love with that is a very who are very successful but aren't passionate about what they do because their parents were folks who encouraged them to make really sensible decisions and I just think oh thank god yeah thank god you know you're allowed because, to do what you wanted to do yeah and I really don't think you know I completely took that for granted and mm. and um no I just think I was really lucky yeah and it's interesting saying about going to a, a single sex school because uh, I did as well. And I, I think about it now and, and I, I, I do remember being sort of told you can do anything. But then I, yeah. you know, there are so many people who are anti single sex schools and I, mm-hmm. I can't decide what 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 is best, really, um, because there are pros and cons. You know, all girls together can get a bit uh, bit uh, aggy with each other. But I yeah. do think that that real because to be a director, you have to have a real confidence and a real self-belief. And do you think that yeah, came, you really do? Do you think that came from school? Yeah, uh, partly. I partly came from. But I, I don't think it was so much to do with it just being girls. I think it was to do with the nature of the school. I went to Kendrick School in Reading and it was just such a such a supportive place or just or I think perhaps it's that they take their students very seriously. So if you said like my example of saying can we have a school play their answer was always we don't have any resources we don't have any time but we do have a space and you've got energy because you're 14 so you organize it and then we will help you Um, and that was the same with everything so I think that it really encouraged self-starters and you know and that that's really special but I think in terms of whether it's good to be at a single sex school, my my worry is I look back and I think, isn't it great that I went to a school where I didn't realise the systemic gender divide? Um, aren't I lucky that I escaped that? That is absolutely not a reason for us to sustain having single sex schools. That is a reason for us to stop having a massive gender divide. Mm. Um, I just think it's it's the wrong way to think about it I think there are lots of advantages of single sex schools I think there's disadvantages as well and and it hugely for me made a difference that about eight minutes roll away across the road there was the single sex or boys school and we spent all of our time up there and they spent their time sort of in our break break times literally sometimes climbing down the drain pipes to come sit in our common room and then escape when we heard a teacher's coming so so it it wasn't really single sex it was single sex education, but with with the, you know there was never boys very far away, and I think that was that was really important. And yeah. if you go to a sort of it wasn't a boarding school or anything like that, and I do think if you're cut off from the other sex, that is, yeah. there's a whole lot of film plots in there. There are, there are. Suddenly at eighteen, you're like, what's that over there? It's a different yeah. species. I've never seen one of those before. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, I mean, it was it's, that's quite an interesting thing. I think it's a little bit like people going to super posh schools and then going to university and going, oh my god, like what is this? Rest of the, I mean, like it's the same the other way around. I went to university, I, I went to my school, had a gap year, went off, roamed around the world, did some really idiotic things and had a bit of a life education. Like, like what, 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 what sort of thing did you do? Oh, just, you know, when you're just not very responsible, I, I um, had a brilliant time, but I just got into scrapes where, you know, I'd end up sort of on a bus without any of my luggage in the middle of the night because I thought it was going <laughs> two miles around the corner and it turned out it was going 
it was an overnight bus to somewhere else in China and I didn't have anything with me. There was no mobile phones at that time. Or, you know, They're I, quite, I, quite I, relaxed I, in your planning. Very relaxed in my <laughs> planning, yeah. And that's something that I have tried to carry on with the rest of my life. Like I, I do like to try and be spontaneous. I've never had a career plan. I've never, I hate the idea of any way in which I'm constricted with what I'll be doing in even a month's time, let alone in six months or a year. So whenever people say, oh, you know, what do you want to do next? Or what's your plan? Or, you know, I didn't even know I was going to make films or be a writer. That was never part of my plan because I didn't have one. But it means that you're always making choices in the moment, kind of being as present as possible. And, mm. you know, mm. and, and similarly with career and with choices about what I'm writing or what film project I'm going to do next, I really... I really like to kind of say, well, but what feels right now? What do I want to do? So it's not a case of I want to direct this one or write this one or write and direct. I'm not trying to become a specific person who fits in that category. It's more about what do I need creatively? What can I give? What have I got to say? Um, and sometimes that will be something I direct for someone else. Sometimes it'll be most of the time it could probably be things I generate myself to write and direct that's what makes me really really happy but I like to balance that with something I'm learning from you know everything I'm doing at the moment I'm solely writing and that's actually a really nice counterpoint to mm. to directing all the time spontaneity that... is your thing yeah you were saying about go yeah. so I interrupted you about your gap here so you were going to central oh yeah I went off around the world and then I went to Exeter and I felt like I, I was in Hope Hall which was a very posh hall <laughs> where you only went because you'd been to public school or um as in private school or you'd had a gap year and I think I might have been the only person there that hadn't gone to private school and I'd had a gap year so I turned up in dungarees probably still with some but like bits of dreadlocks in the back of my hair and sort of <laughs> feeling you know having spent a long time there weren't very many young people in some of the parts of the world I'd been hanging out in and I'd just come back from Bolivia and I'd been very used to sort of making friends with random 28 29 30 year olds and just going on these adventures and then I came back and was suddenly surrounded by this sort of super white very posh wearing quite cords. particular posh yeah they all drove polos and wore pashminas and um, dressed in, everything was from crew, you know, which I'd never heard of. People wore deck shoes. I was like, I didn't even know what, you know, it was yachty central polo. And, and I remember um, going along, knocking on my neighbour's door and um, to say, oh, do you want to come down to the bar? I hadn't unpacked or anything. I just got there and thought, oh, I want to just want to meet some people. And he said, oh, um, no, 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 I'm, I'm, um, I'm unpacking. Do you know what we do with our linen? And just remember sort of st staring at him and thinking, have I walked on some sort of piece of immersive theatre? Is this, are we back in, is this some coward play? Because I've never heard anyone use the word linen ever in real life, only in books or plays or films. <laughs> and what do you mean? Like, do you know what we do with our linen? Do you mean, do you know where the slave is? Who's going to wash it for you? Is that your question? Do you want a servant or, and do you mean linen? Is that an item of clothing or are you talking about bedclothes? I don't even know. And, um, it's all I, good material for your writing yeah. <laughs> in the future. But it was totally an alien. And also I was vegetarian. So, you know, and so, and at that point in whatever it was, 2001, 
I remember going down and bearing in mind this is a kind of hunting set, at, you know, and, and none of these people were drama school people. I was the only drama school person in this hall, obviously, because drama school people were not posh, uh, not drama school, drama department people. And we all turned up in the department on day two and everyone looked, there's lots of people from walking up, who'd walked down the hill as opposed to the people who'd walked up from the less posh halls who were sort of looking a bit shell-shocked and everyone kind of went, oh, how's your horn? went, oh my God you know those posh people in plays they really exist none of us knew I had never met somebody like that in my entire time so when you got to the drama department you kind of found your clan and uh oh, yeah. they were people who I recognized they were <laughs> we were a tribe and and so when did the decision come to like I'm not going to actually act anymore I'm going to direct this was at university you, you suddenly decided I'm going to veer yeah a very specific moment actually um I can I can pinpoint it which is that in my third year, I bunked off a bit of the final year to go and be the assistant director on the summer production at the Northcock Theatre, which was a production of As You Like It in Rougemont Gardens. And I became the assistant director. I was doing the, one of the courses I was doing at university was the directing course, um, which I loved. And I suddenly I was telling all these stories and being more responsible for them. But I still in my heart wanted to be an actor because it's what I'd wanted to do since I was very small. And um, I realised when we started having meetings that there was all this fascinating stuff. We were sitting there looking at a model box, deciding how we were going to set this, who the composer was going to be, what the musical world of it was going to be. I was tasked, because we were setting it at the end of the 1800s and it was a sort of pastoral world, um, I was tasked with finding paintings that would be useful, stories yeah. and all that sort of thing, and um, working with the designer to sort of feed things in and looking for songs and all the world of it. And it was so fascinating. And they hadn't even cast it yet. And I thought oh, the actors don't get to see any of this bit. That's a shame. And then, you know, met the actors on the first day. I thought, oh, yeah, but that's what I want to do. And actually one of them was away, so I read their part in the read-through and I thought, oh, yeah, I love this. This is my favourite thing. And then um, very quickly during the rehearsal process, I realised that, you know, the director was there all the time. First thing in the morning, every single part of every single scene he was across and the actors would turn up for a couple of hours to do their bit and then they go away and some of them I wouldn't see for another week because they'd only mm. be in two scenes and I just get terrible FOMO I'll be honest that was the thing I, was like, I want to be involved in everything I, I want to be there know, all the time being at the music meeting and I want to know what's going on with the set and what an amazing world to be building and I suddenly thought I think this is more interesting for me mm. I really I also really love working in a team and the other part of it which I've increasingly realized that I enjoyed is that both as a writer and um, as a director, you're far more responsible for making your own work. And as an actor, one of the trickiest things is that you really do have to rely on yeah. other people offering you something and you signing up essentially most of the time until you get to an elevated place for somebody else's project. And it's only when you're a truly successful actor that you can start. Well, that's not entirely true, actually, but the more success that you have, the easier it is for mm. you to form your own work and put yourself in it. Yeah, so and I also, feel very lucky not to be part of that game of having to wait for the phone to ring. Yes, and the things that you really, really want as an actor often don't come your way, so there's disappointment. Whereas as a director, you're more in control, aren't you? You are, yeah. I mean, and there's still a shortage of 
work as a director but there's you can always you're always working on something and if you're not being asked to work on something for somebody else you can be making your own new project and then you can take it to somebody so I never ever I mean it's, this comes back to the fact I don't like downtime very much but I have always found it very easy to fill my life up with um generating and getting excited by new ideas and I feel like being a writer director allows me to do that all the time and mm. what I need to be what I've what I've got much better at over the last few years is saying no <laughs> um and being much more confident in making choices and realizing that you can say no and it doesn't mean the end of the road for working with someone it just means you probably don't have the time right now or that you're doing something that you're heart driven by and I think it's also been for me about um, trying to be true to myself and not getting illused by the sort of shininess of interesting sounding projects when if my heart's not really in them yeah. and I think that's I'm 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 I think that will be a constant battle for me but I've so for example at the moment I've got too many things on my plate and I have absolutely promised myself that when I get through my current slate I've got one really big upcoming project which I haven't started yet but it's going to be really really time consuming for probably quite a long time and when I do that I want to as soon as I start that anything else that comes in it, it has to be a no <laughs> unless it's something well depends that, what it is doesn't it <laughs> well no it has to be a no unless it's something that I would be devastated not to do it because actually I've realized that um, particularly in film it's something that I've learned to my cost it's very different from the theatre that theatre always has a specific timeline attached so you know that you can do two things at once because you know that at this one is going to be going on at this point and is going to finish at this yes. point. Whereas with film, you know, three of the films I'm doing at the moment, I've been involved in for three or four years because they come and they they then pause because they're getting a member of cast attached and then that cast member drops out and then you've got a different director and they want a slightly different take. And so, you know, you've got no, if you take on a film, you have to know that you might have to live with it for a really long time. You can't just write it and then say, Okay, yes. I'm done. Off you go. Yeah. yeah. So now that you're working more with film, but you know, you did spend a lot of time in the theatre, starting at the Northcote, and and, yeah, and that was just, I imagine, a brilliant start to kind of get the experience and and the confidence and running the room and yeah, and, and going dealing with everything. From there to yeah, I mean, it it really has been, and I adore the theatre, and I feel like everything. If I'm if I have any ability in film, it's because of having started in the theatre, for sure. And part of the good training that theatre gives you is that you live and die by the sword. So you can't rely on anybody else in a creative team to make your work better. It has to be good. There isn't six people writing your play with you. I mean, for the most part. <laughs> um, you know, you become a successful playwright because you write something which is essentially a solo act. And then you know, you have to put it out there. Whereas with film, it really is, there's so many people essentially interfering in some ways during the <laughs> whole process. If you've cut your teeth in theatre and you know to put the story first and find your voice there before you have to work with multiple other people on storytelling, simply for financial reasons, because mm. you're responsible for telling a story that is going to be worth millions of pounds. So of course, people are invested in it. 
when there is no money at stake and it's just is it good or not that is the best possible way to start and I will always be grateful for that and I'll always come back to it as well yeah yeah and working after Exeter with because you work with uh, Max Stafford Clark that's right isn't it? that's right yeah yeah, yeah yeah so great experiences and then getting the Olivier for Nell Gwyn do you think it's really important for for writers to to, to get awards and, you know a lot of people are sort of shy away from I don't you know I, I want to hide away because it, it's embarrassing almost to put myself forward but do you think it's really important to get known by, by getting awards? I do yeah do you know what? I really do and and I probably wouldn't have said that if we'd recorded this yesterday but I've been thinking <laughs> about it because this morning I listened to the absolutely brilliant um Bernadine Everisto yeah. on Desert Island Discs and she talks about winning the booker and how unashamedly she wanted it so much because she knew it would change her life because she knew it would give her a platform and she says now she you know before nobody knew she, who she was and she didn't really have space to have a voice that was listened to by anyone other than her immediate circle and now she set, she puts a tweet out and that's a newspaper headline and that ability to have contact with the public and to have a platform for your voice is invaluable mm -hmm. if you are someone who's political and who's got something to say which I think most writers do some not but you know I certainly feel like part of my agenda and my um you know the gift that is a writing career allows you to be somebody who will sometimes have a platform to speak publicly and if you can use that for good then that's really important and I think that that is good but I also feel like it's it's definitely changed my career it's definitely meant it's been easier to get films greenlit it's definitely a reason why people would come to me or trust me to do something if there's a question of or oh, oh, we don't know whether she's right oh but some people obviously think she's good enough because they because gave her this statue one night in a random place in England you know and so I I do think it's important um yeah and I wish it wasn't um and I don't think it's essential at all um but I think that it helps mm. although and, on balance there's a you know a few years ago it was probably more important whereas now social media has its own spin to the extent that you know it's probably no different in some ways to somebody having X number of million followers on Twitter if they're yeah. an internet sensation. Yes, that's, no, that's a good analogy. And, and Nell Gwynn's just been cast, the um, the film version. Mm. Yeah. That's, yeah. That, that's exciting. And But also, you know, so much going on at the moment. As the director, I know you said that with... Um, with Summerland and you weren't sure about you, you were going to cast an older person for the, for mm -hmm, the character mm -hmm. and then Gemma came along so as a director I guess you have you you know who you want but you also have to be open to other people's ideas and you say you like working collaboratively so you have to listen yeah to absolutely I mean and the the three films of mine that are going into production next year now being one of them um I'm not directing any of them so I'm not directing now or um, persuasion or Longbourn which is lovely actually because it means that I actually get to work with directors and hand over the baton to them and but still be very involved in the creative process and what's interesting about that casting for all of those is that I am involved in the casting of all of those projects but it's not all on me so when you're the writer director of course you write, work with a casting director and that's a wonderful thing which I adore because you know it's really important to to bring in people that you wouldn't expect or that you don't know but yeah it's it's really interesting seeing other people's lists for characters that I know really well and I actually really enjoy that 
Yeah. But but when you do have the dual role of being the director and the writer, like in Summerland, mm-hmm. that must be so all-encompassing. Because, oh, yeah. it, I mean, it's <laughs> you must have come out of that and just kind of gone, right, did you think I need a massive break, a big holiday? Or I guess well, you, you would can't go on really, to the next project. Because you come straight off set and then you're in the edit and then you're there for however long. Oh, and ours <laughs> was a very long edit on that film. And by that point, because I had... Because I didn't know when Summerland was going to go or not, I was already writing several other projects while we were waiting to hear about the green light and then you get the green light. And so for for a year, everything else has to go on pause while you do that film. And then by the time you finish it, you've got the people who you had to pause saying, oh, thank God, you're back. We've been waiting for you. You're ready to go. So that's why downtime, learning downtime to come back to what we were talking about at the beginning has been really important because just for my self-preservation, I've had to yes. learn to say, I need a pause now, just for a bit, and then I'll start. And it was the same this year with lockdown. I've never worked as hard and I do not take that for granted. And I know that most people have, have had no work rather yeah. than lots of work. So I, I kind of feel really weird saying that in any kind of a public space. But the truth of it is that the film industry did shut down, but the part of it that they could keep going was the development and writing, you know, because they would they thought, well, we'll get all our scripts yes. ready for when things start working again. So writers were suddenly, you know, inundated. And a lot of us had quite a stressful time trying to balance all of those different projects. So I did at the end of lockdown say, okay, I need I need four weeks off before I start my next project, Excellent. which I've just done, which was the best. So I went to Italy and basically bathed in Campari, essentially, <laughs> and Aperol spritzes for a month, behaved oh. really badly, didn't sleep, didn't really relax because I was having too much fun and saw loads of friends and, um, I, you know, ate all the pasta and, and had the most sort of gorgeous time of just you know, eating figs straight off the tree oh, every nice. morning, just saying, oh, what could be better? <laughs> <laughs> um, because there was to be a time when you thought Summerland was not going to make it um, onto the screen because of of what was going on. But you said that you were writing a lot. And I wondered whether we saw a bit of you in the film because of where she's, you know, she's trying to write and then she keeps getting interrupted and she's pulling the paper out of her typewriter going, oh, what now? Always, yeah. And, and I know I, mean, I always thought that I wrote other people but I think in all of my heroines and some of my anti-heroes and some of the 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 non-heroes in my work you know I can't help but put myself in there yeah 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 and 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 we've talked about all girls schools and women and and you know you do like having a a female team around you because I know that I think Summerland was 50 50 wasn't it but there was a there's a real core of core of women and because and obviously we haven't talked about um the red-handed theatre company but that was women together as well so does that do you, do you find that gives you great strength do you know it's not about working with lots of women actually it's about um it's about having a diverse group of people I think mm-hmm. that's more important I've done lots of work and I really believe in work with with primarily female teams and actually the short film I made um was we tried to go for 100% at leading lady parts because it was about feminism and it was for Time's Up. Um, we tried to have 100% crew just to prove that you can do it because people tend to say, oh, it's really difficult to do 50-50 on a film set because there's not that many women who do X, Y, Z jobs. And, mm. you know, that's just frankly not true. And if it is true, then we need to do something about it. But I think I always try and give 
people opportunities. I really try and give women in particular opportunities, but I think equally important to that is making sure we have diverse enough groups. And my policy with Red Handed was always on every single production, we've got to have one person on that production whose first job it is. It didn't matter who they were, male, female, what race they were, what class they were, whatever. We always tried to find someone who might not have had that opportunity normally, but every single show there was someone whose first job it was, even if they were an assistant. And I, um, and that came from the fact that Max gave me a shot as a young assistant director when I wasn't really qualified to do so, but he believed in me. And I thought, that's what you need actually use. You need people to have a little bit of faith. And that's how we get new people onto mm. sets. That's so lovely, isn't it? When something good has happened to you and you sort of, you're passing it on because that's what it's all about. I think it's essential, yeah. Yeah, and and a bit like getting to the cinema now because this week has been so depressing in terms of cinemas shutting and it's just getting out there if you can and... and, Yeah, absolutely. And And I've made a a sort of pledge that I'm going to go every single week, at least once a week. I've actually been twice already this week and (laughs) I'm going tonight. But I think that that's what we need to do is is if you can, of course, if you're shielding or whatever, fair enough. But, um, you know, there's lots of people that don't feel secure in going out. And I absolutely respect that. But I think if you are someone who's going to restaurants, you're going to the pub, you're doing whatever, do consider going to the cinema because those buildings simply will not exist unless we continue to support them. They need us. And it is such a wonderful antidote to this terrible affliction that we're all going through at the moment. So, Mm, yeah, yeah. definitely. We we need it in our lives. And I wondered, um, because we talked about awards and and then you got this this bursary for Summerland. Was that something that you then applied for? That was something that I didn't apply for it. I am. I had no idea you get nominated by somebody. And it was only when I got a letter saying you're one of 30 people who've been chosen to be on the shortlist for this that that I then went for the interview and everything so I didn't expect it at all but it was a massively terrifying process because you're thinking I've got a blank piece of paper here now I can do what I like or were were you really excited by well you must have been excited but slightly terrified I would have thought yeah I mean it, it was it was intimidating and I had never written a film from scratch before so um I thought that it was both really exciting and something to be embraced. And I just had to sort of lose myself in and hope that, that I would find a way through. But I mean, that was that was what's exciting. And that I've I've started to learn to love that as well and to find strategies of, of ways to get through that. But I, I always had a sort of bank of ideas that I'd be ready to pull from and things that I'd been interested in and that I wanted to do. But for this, they absolutely said you can't use something that you've already got you have to start from scratch that is that's the rule you know that's what we're paying you for is to create something original and that's what's hard and that's what people aren't doing in cinema and that's the whole reason for this bursary so yeah baptism by fire but yeah but you did it well we loved it as well so I know you say um you can't really say what's coming up next because you like to 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 live on the you know whatever comes my way but it's it I mean what you you've obviously got loads of stuff going on but if we look back at pivotal moments in, in your career we, we've talked about your parents and having that backing heading to to Exeter moving away from all the um <laughs> the posher <laughs> lot um uh, but but people that really supported you like Max uh, Stafford Clark were other other pivotal moments that we haven't talked about gosh so many of them um but I I think a lot of it is to do with I, I probably put two things right out there one is 
realizing that I could do comedy and um, embracing when I did The Rivals, um, because that was the first time that I took an old play that was a comedy and made it my own by giving it sort of modern spin and adding things to it. And that was that was a really successful production. And it was the first thing I directed in a sort of proper public form and the first time I got national reviews. And so that was a really important moment that was just a huge confidence boost that made me think, oh, I should trust my instincts because I this isn't a fashionable project to have done. It's not, I'm not at the Royal Court with all my peers. I'm, you know, in Southwark Playhouse and asking people to sit in this funny old dungeon space and watch a play that was written 200 years ago, but with a particular spin that I hope people would like in which they seem to. And so that was sort of, that gave me some confidence working at the Globe and, and Dominic Drumgall's faith in me as a writer as well was, was huge. Um, and then actually over the last few years, working with Gemma in particular, but also with Gugu. I mean, Gugu I met on that first play I was talking about in Exeter. Mm. Um, having friends who are also really hardworking and also really in the industry who I share that with and who sort of get it as well, because it's both a sort of wonderfully exciting life and really hard. And that that sort of balance of being in public and the good things about that and the difficult things about that in terms of you say something you think this is fantastic because I've got a platform and suddenly that means that people might not like what you have to say or they can uh, read it wrongly or you know people people like your work great because it's celebrated and if they don't like it everybody knows that you've got a terrible review so um, I think really my friendships Mm. have been our pivotal and also having just just really life balance I feel like I'm particularly living with my partner Mike and sort of feeling like I lost my dad a few years ago which was a, definitely the biggest thing to happen to me in my adult life bigger mm. than anything else and I think the sort of perspective and a rethinking of priorities that life gives you I feel like now I love my work dearly but it is not the only thing that defines me and it's also something that I can pause and it doesn't break my heart mm, mm. yeah uh, I think that's wonderful and also so great that you know you getting these people who've never had any experience before on board in new projects uh, and encouraging people and I can't wait to see what's coming up next there's so much mm. coming and you know every time I'm like oh yeah there's, there's something else that she's done I mean oh, it's inc yeah. it's, incre it's incredibly exciting and, and thank you so much for doing everything that you've done so far because as I said to you at the beginning a film that my whole family can sit down and, and actually finally my husband said um, I can't give too much away because people haven't seen it but mm -hmm. you know something wasn't said a big thing wasn't said in the film so yeah. um, something happened in, the, in our house. Like somebody somebody let, let the cat out the bag. And my husband said, oh, they're doing a summer land. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's well, a bit I, that... I do like a good twist. Yeah, but there's, a, there's a bit of a, a phrase now. In our, and it's not often that a film really stays with you for, for a long time. Oh, and so, thank so thank you, you so much for... Well, that really means um, something. And you know what, what really means something? And that's that your whole family could watch it together because that's what I got from the Globe. And that comes back to what I was saying about the sort of growing up being in this sort of being with girls, being in a kind of an academic space, being with very normal people, suddenly meeting a load of posh people, wanting to work with a diverse group of people and working at the Globe, which is the most democratic theatre because 
you know, you can see a show for a fiver and everybody is welcome. And, um, and you know, someone like Mark Rylance will stand on stage a metre away from people who've paid a fiver for a ticket and he will speak to the people who are there and to the people at the top who's paid £70 for a really posh seat and a special night out and a dinner. And there's there's something about the democracy of storytelling, which I love. And I, I'm just never, I've never been interested in making sort of super highbrow work only for an elite group or making work for a specific audience. I like to make work which is accessible for everybody. And so if I make a film which can be enjoyed by a whole family, that really is my raison d'etre. Mm, brilliant. Oh, it's a pleasure speaking to you today. Thank you so you much. You too. And, uh, Thank you. Can't, can't wait, as I said, can't wait to see what's next. It's exciting. Brilliant. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks so much to Jessica for being so generous with her time. Uh, you can follow her on Twitter at jswale and we're there too on at where go right. If you're really interested in film, writing, theatre, well, we've got Louise Kiley, casting director, writers Suzanne Heathcote, Katie Baxendale and Tariq Jordan and actress Kate Fleetwood all there waiting for you to listen to. Thanks to Megan for replying to my annoying WhatsApps and uh, producing this episode and Laura Shipsey for the music. We'll see you next week. This episode of Where Did It All Go Right is sponsored by Pearson. Pearson is the world's learning company, supporting talent and helping everyone to make progress in their lives through learning. Working with teachers and education experts, Pearson provides a wide range of qualification routes so you can pick the course which suits you best to develop your skills and stand out in the crowd. Visit them online at go.pearson.com forward slash where did it all go right?